the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. David Volotsko, thank you so much for being with us. As I mentioned, I first found out about you reading your piece in the free press. Someone sent it to me and said, you've got to speak to this man. And there is so much of a tie-in right now to what's going on in the Middle East that I thought this would be a, a, a very good time to chat with you. And I'm so glad we've connected. So thank you. Thank you for having me. So in the free press, you wrote that you had gone west, picked up your family, moved to write for the Seattle Times. And very shortly, you wrote a piece that got you canceled, which is the term we use these days, um, for when someone writes something that others disagree with and they make enough noise, they can hurt you. So why don't you give us your thumbnail sort of sketch of that incident? Uh, sure. My um, my boss had suggested that I write about a statue in a neighborhood of Seattle called Fremont. There's a statue there. 15, 16 foot tall bronze statue of Vladimir Lenin. Um, I, I, I don't personally, the, the statue itself is not, is, you know, it's not taken that seriously by locals. And, um, but I, but it was, a it's not something that really felt to me particularly pressing, but it was an interesting way for me to introduce myself, I thought. And, and it wasn't very hard for me to make a connection personally to it because, uh, my father's side of the family were uh, Russian refugees, so or immigrants, they you know fleeing the Soviet Union. So I was I was able to talk about that. I wrote a column for the Seattle Times, my first column, which was about the statue, and not saying that I think that it should be taken down, just saying that I think that the community, whether they choose to keep it up or not, this community decision. I believe in in the community having a democratic decision as to what to do with it, but they should at least be aware what all members of the community feel about this. And indeed, as soon as I wrote the column, many people reached out to me to say, thank you so much, because it was quite painful for many of these people. One person in particular wrote to me saying that when his grandmother came to visit, who was Russian, she wept when she saw the statue of Vladimir Lenin standing, towering over her in the United States of America. So, um, so was wrote, the, did, were you suggested to write this column because there was some debate about whether or not to take this statue of Lenin down? It seems to be a perennial issue in Seattle. Uh, it, and in fact, I would I would say that I think among locals, it's probably a bit of a, a dead horse that keeps getting beat occasionally. So I don't th- I it's on private property. I don't think that there's I mean, there have been places in the United States where Confederate statues were on private property and there are ways to to get them taken down if uh, local government is, is adamant about doing it, but it's probably not going anywhere to be honest. And the local community doesn't seem that upset about it. So I wasn't coming at it from that angle. In fact, it wasn't a, a column about 
uh, what do we do with this statue? It was a column about the selective outrage that I see on, on the left, especially in a place like Seattle, where people are not only outraged about Confederate statues, let's say, but a statue of George Washington or something of, of this nature. So these things are utterly outrageous and they must be taken down. They are offensive and we will not tolerate it. But Vladimir Lenin is okay by us. And I thought that was worth this, leave the statue, take it down. That's not really my fight, but the selective outrage, I, I just found it, you know, stunning. And yeah. I wanted to highlight that. And, and so in doing so, and, and by the way, I, I, I'm, I, I'm with you on this because I've heard people want statues of Winston Churchill taken down because they believe before he kind of helped things get better in, in the UK and Europe in general, you know, that he was a racist. So his statue must come down. We must not glorify anything that Winston Churchill has done or Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, as you mentioned. But sure, let's keep Lenin up. And in to, to build some context for what you were saying, you is it. How would you describe? It? Was it a comparison between Lenin and Hitler? What what was? How did you bring Hitler into the picture? Oh, uh, that's when I was sharing my column on uh, social media on uh, Twitter X, okay. and uh, and I started. I make I made the argument about selective outrage, and I said, you know, we wouldn't tolerate for one second a statue uh, of um, of Adolf Hitler, right. And we, and we all know that we wouldn't, and we all know why. So why do we tolerate a statue of Vladimir Lenin? And indeed, uh, and I made this very clear on Twitter that Hitler is worse in terms of action. You can just look at the number of people killed. And also the particular method used, this industrial form of genocide is a uniquely evil thing, which is precisely why we went from calling uh referring to genocides as holocausts. There were others. Churchill, in fact, referred to the Armenian genocide as a holocaust. Holocaust was being thrown around to describe multiple genocides at the time. We switched, and now we talk about the holocaust. Yeah. And the reason is because of the, the uniquely industrial evil nature of this genocide that makes it, that distinguishes it from others. Okay, that's all hopefully understood, although... Things are not always that understood when you're <laughs> on Twitter, but that like Hitler was worse in terms of his actions. Okay. But psychologically Hitler was, was a delusional racist. Um, and there is, there is perhaps one thing that is even worse than that. And it is to be willing to support the same level of violence without the delusion. And I believe that describes Vladimir Lenin. I, you know, I've read, the speeches I've read Mein Kampf. I've, uh, my assessment of Hitler is that he wasn't particularly bright. He was incredibly hot headed. He was what you might refer to. This is an out, outdated, uh, psychological framework, but there is something known as type one, type two psychopath and type two psychopath is the more hot headed, uh, um, impulsive sort of someone who will react and lose it. And that to me seems to be a, a, a fair characterization of Hitler. Lenin was more calculating, thoughtful. He knew, for instance, before he ever got into power, and this is the example that I gave on, on Twitter, um, before he got into power during the 1891 Volga famine, he went around spreading misinformation about efforts to save lives, not because he thought they were harmful to people, but because he thought they were helpful and he wanted to maximize death. And he knew that the people that were dying had done nothing wrong. He didn't have any delusional beliefs about their uh, about them being harmful to society or anything like that. He, 
he had no such beliefs at all. He had, he just wanted as many people as possible to die because he, he was an accelerationist and he want, he hoped that if he could maximize the death, that it would, um, break Russia and, and the utopia would come, people would rise up and, and this sort of thing. So. I, I, it always it flabbergasts me that we talk about the, their end game being utopia and in order to get there, they just put hell on earth. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but so you, you bring this up on social media and then that's when the firestorm begins and it results in someone suggesting that you said, eh, Hitler's not that bad, which any person in their right mind would not have read into this, but someone just wanted to take you out, it seemed, and wanted to use this little, this reference to, to, to attack you. And I'm not sure if they had something against you. You were new to Seattle. That often happens to new people in a market that, they, you know, they, they're just, they're focused upon and they find a weakness they want to go after it. And I'm not really sure why that is, but I do know that from experience. So, but it's amazing to me, the Seattle Times seemed to back you at first, but then what happened? There was a review of everything that I had written um, to determine whether or not I had said something offensive, uh, which is as it should be. And the determination was that I had not. And I was told by my boss, as well as by another of my bosses, uh, we've got you. Uh, we've got your back. We're, we will not stand for a lying Twitter mob coming after one of our journalists. We're not going to. And I thought that's the correct, that's the correct approach here. And I was proud to, to be, you know, on a team that protects its journalists when they are and a columnist who is essentially on social media thinking out loud, but carefully and in good faith, agree or disagree, but that's, you know, a columnist is supposed to. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so it was there and that, and it was left there. We've got you, you're good. Don't worry. And I was kind of, you know, I was a bit worried. They were like, yes, but don't be, uh, we can't do anything about the death threats, but we can tell you that your job is secure. Uh, two hours later, perhaps the same boss called back and said effective immediately, et cetera. And, and I was, I said, but you've already seen all the information. There's no new developments. Why would this change? We're not going to have that conversation right now. Um, now I have, I can speculate that someone higher up picked up a phone and, and, and reversed the decision, but I, that's, that's my speculation. So you still don't know. I have a fairly strong speculation based on um, my understanding of personalities and okay. character that, yeah, I mean, but, but again, I don't have any evidence for this. No, I, I, nobody told me directly. It was just, you're gone. So. Hi everyone. If you've been injured in an accident, that was not your fault. Listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now 
800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Which must have been an absolute stunner for you. And you had moved your family uh, to make this job happen. So now you're you're there. How long had you been at at the Seattle Times when this happened? Uh, Approximately two months. Two months to a job. I moved there from Georgia. Uh, We had sold our house, moved to Seattle, my wife, baby daughter. So, yeah, it was... uh, Yes. And then we were in Seattle, which um, I probably don't have to tell people is is an expensive city. It's an expensive city. And in spite of being what they like to call a diverse and inclusive city, obviously they aren't inclusive of certain opinions and certain ways of thinking. Am I wrong? Um, Quite a lot of people are in my experience that I've that I've uh, engaged with on other issues. Uh, as a member of the editorial board, I, I wrote editorials on other issues. I found people to be, I mean, yes, it is, it is fair to say that there is an intolerance uh, among progressives in Seattle and that Seattle is a, a largely progressive city. But there are many people who are very tolerant. I think what happened here is just that there are incredibly intolerant, especially people online who are largely doing this for sport or just yes. trolls or just the worst kind of literal Leninists who were contacting me and sending me death threats and saying, you know, how dare you disrespect Lenin? You, you know, you should put a gun in your mouth. Um, and the paper went with that crowd over their journalist. And so it's not so much that there's this, this widespread atmosphere of intolerance, although there are criticisms that could be made along those lines. It's just that, there is a particular group of highly intolerant people that the paper sided with. And I, and I keep shaking my head because this is a, while your story is, is stark. And to me, it's, it, it's really uh, disappointing, really disappointing how this was handled. It's not uncommon. And it's, it's striking to me that the, the people in, in these, you know, upper management, whatever it is, making these decisions don't seem to have the spine to stand up for what is right. And, and that is so disappointing. What, what, what I don't know about you yet, before we get into how this all now has dredged up some things, which are going on for you in your personal life and the connection with the Middle East, but where are you now? What, what, what have the professional fates brought you to? Uh, in terms of my career? Yes. Uh, I'm currently focused on, I have a substack. I write about political extremism. It's called The Radicalist. It's my name, Velasco, at substack. So this is, a, this is a subject that has been near and dear to my heart for a long time. I've, ironically, of, of all of the journalists that could be canceled for allegedly being a Holocaust denier or a Hitlerite, I have spent much of my career exposing neo-Nazism and writing about genocide in various parts of the world. Um, writing about sexism in various parts of the world, racism in various parts of the world. So uh, the transit, when this happened, what a lot of journalists will sometimes do when they're in an experience like this is they'll lean into it. And the lean for me was quite a natural one because I, well, I was already there. 
I was already focused on these issues of political extremism and genocidal violence. So I started a Substack, and I now write uh, and comment and interview people about these issues uh, across the full range of the political spectrum. So um, I'm sometimes writing about extremism, uh, fascism. I'm sometimes writing about communism. Recently, I'm writing quite a lot about events in the Middle East. So let's go there. Uh, October 7th happens. What is your first reaction? I have loved ones in Israel. So my first reaction was uh, to reach out to them and to see how they were, to see if they or any of their family members uh, had been involved. That was the first thing. I think that was the first thing for many people. Anyone who has family there, that's the first thing you think about is the people that you love. Um, and uh, most of them got back to me very quickly to say that everything was fine. Then one of them got back to me to say that uh, his uh, one of his family members had been at the music festival um, and was killed. Oh. And then another one of my loved ones got back to me to say that um, they too had uh, one of their friends had been kidnapped. Um, and then a third one got back did third one got back to me to say something similar. So initially I had this incredible sigh of relief because the first ones to get back to me were okay. And then a couple of days later, these other responses started to roll in. Then I, from there, we're all reeling from this, particularly people like you who have loved ones there and mm. particularly people who are there and experiencing all of this. And we're reeling and we're asking ourselves how, and then there's this Im very quick response from, I don't know how else to describe them. They, they say they're supporters of Palestine or Palestinians, mm -hmm. but really what it comes down to is a rejoicing of this action by Hamas, a, a, a terrorist group. Mm -hmm. How did that strike you? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was, I was repulsed and sickened. Um, I thought again about my loved ones. I, I, you know, I'm a new father as well, as I mentioned. And every time I look at the faces of these children on both sides of the conflict, I, I can't help but see the, you know, the face, the face of my own child. I think, I think a lot of parents yes. feel that way when they, when they do, when they see this. Um, and then also I thought to myself, huh? I just, I just got fired for making an argument exactly about like, it was about selective outrage and the first and the difference between delusional evil and cognizant evil. And the selective outrage couldn't be more appallingly obvious than, than to be, to be, to, to have sympathy for Palestinian people, but to have absolutely none for Jewish people who are being killed in the largest massacre since the Holocaust. And not only that, because I think there is a space there for people to say, okay, this is terrible what happened to Israelis, but I care more about the Palestinian cause. In fact, I have, I have a friend who fits this description. I care more about the Palestinian cause. That's where I'm going to put my energy. That's fine. That's an arguable position. But then there was the another group of people who came out and said things like the Hamas violence was exhilarating, Professor Cornell. Um, there was another activist in Canada who said that the violence, Hamas's violence was 
beautiful. Um, and so this, I, this argument that I had made about the selective outrage of the left, but not just that, the part that really offended people was where I had made the argument about the uh, psychopathologies of Lenin versus Hitler. Mm -hmm. And although Hitler had done worse in action, I felt that psychologically, because of the cognizance of Lenin, that he was a more terrifying and evil figure. So then I see this play out. And what I see is I may, I'm, I was making the same argument I, recently to a friend. I said, yeah, Hamas is killing people. I don't think anyone has to have it explained to them that that is worse than protesting. Obviously, that's worse. But psychologically, I'm actually more disturbed by some of the people in the West because Hamas militants grow up in an environment where they are so profoundly brainwashed with anti-Semitic hatred. You can see the videos online of five-year-olds in Gaza who talk about they want to grow up and they want to kill Jews. So the brainwashing is intense and it starts early. So by the time you get to the age where, you know, I, I feel like almost to a degree, some of them as if they never even had a chance, but to go down a certain path and that they're so completely delusional that, that, you know, that's evil, but, but perhaps even more evil psychologically is to have to support the same action without the delusion, not being brainwashed, yeah. having access to the best education, living in a free society, not being oppressed horrifically with bombs falling and your family members dying, but but having a happy childhood and then supporting that violence. Yeah. That's wide-eyed. That's wide-eyed support for genocide as opposed to delusional. And that to me is more terrifying because I feel as if, and I've, and I've had this conversation with a, actually a, a psychologist who specializes in cults and the sort of Hamas archetype, those are individuals who you could potentially reach because they're, they've deluded themselves into believing that they're fighting the fight of the good. And if it were possible to show them the innocence of their victims, you could perhaps get through to them if you could convince them that they're hurting innocent people. But if somebody is already aware of the innocence of their victims and they're willing to hurt them, there's nothing for you to show them at that point. They're, they're a psychopath and they don't care. They know that this person has done nothing wrong and they're willing to hurt them anyway. That's, that's truly scary. And the mask came off these past few weeks, I think. And a lot of people have realized like, you know, or, or to use another analogy, like the lights came on, we all looked around and we realized the people we were sitting next to were not actually our uh, allies. In this right. Fight. It's terrifying to me to listen to all of these Western college kids. And I, again, and I ask myself, are they being taught this nonsense or are they just showing up for rallies? Is it a combination thereof? Now, one of the things we cannot deny any longer is that there is true evil in the world. You talked about it with Lenin and Hitler, no matter what their mindset, this was evil. And what's going on right now is evil. And when I see these, I'm sorry, stupid kids come out with signs that say Allah loves transgenders. <laughs> I have to think, are you, are you kidding me? Like, are, how can you be that ignorant? And as, as much as they're trying to brainwash kids in Gaza at five years old to, to hate Jews, seems to me we're, I don't know if brainwashing is the word, but we're certainly not 
as you said, giving these kids with happy upbringings, good educations, access to information, access to all kinds of information. And yet this is the stuff we're spewing. How do we get here? Yeah, I think actually part of it is, uh, I think it's good faith. I think it's the, and now there, there's, you know, if you break it down, there are multiple different types of individuals within these, these movements. And so you do have, I think you do have actual, uh, psychopathic racists who simply want to vent their racism, but they understand that that's not going to be socially acceptable. And so on the right, on the far right, for instance, um, you have white nationalists who we refer to as ghost skins, which is a term for a white nationalist who understands that they can't openly talk about these things. So they will essentially conceal themselves and find other ways to express and they use dog whistles or whatever, but so they're a ghost skinhead. Um, on the left, I think you do actually have racists who understand that by dressing their, their rhetoric up in the language of woke ideology, they can get away with saying some pretty horrific things, but it's because like the things that you hear some activists say about white people, for instance, and I've, there's even been some scandals with, with, um, professors or psychiatrists giving speeches in which they openly talk about, they fantasize about murdering white people. Um, and this is more accepted because it's within the language of, you know, anti-racism or, you know, um, uh, non-white people cannot be racist and et cetera. And there's another category of people who I think are genuinely good hearted, uh, and they mean well, and they're really good faith. And they're so good faith, in fact, that they're willing to bend their own rationality to, to sort of shoehorn themselves into positions that if they thought carefully, you know, there's, they're, they're probably hearing a voice in the back of their head, like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. And they're like, in fact, I interviewed someone like this who said she had that voice in the back of her head, like, wait, this, this, this feels wrong to me, but she so much wanted to be a good person that she would silence that voice. She's like, don't, don't question this. Don't be, don't be racist. Don't, don't be sex. Don't be transphobic. Like just go with this because this is the correct progressive thing to do. So, you know, she silenced that voice and, um, she's Jewish and it was actually her confrontation with uh, rampant anti-Semitism and the progressive movement that was part of what woke her up and kind of brought her back to the center. She just, uh, she couldn't believe the, the level of anti-Semitism that she encountered. Uh, can I stop you there and ask you, because I don't, I don't understand it. I, and I, I, I've read and I've watched and I've read and I've listened and I've read some more. And you can tell me about the history of all of this, et cetera, et cetera. I don't understand anti-Semitism. I don't understand where this hatred comes from originally. How would you you know, explain to some numbskull like me and anyone else out there who is going, I just don't get this, where this comes from. Uh, I think it's probably a mistake to look for historical reasons, although they can add nuance and understanding to the issue. But ultimately, people who are alive today are probably not anti-Semitic for ancient historical reasons. They're they're essentially people who I think psychologically are, you know, they would have, they're intolerant and, and hateful for any number of reasons that could be 
environmental, uh, such as the, the, um, quality of life conditions and brainwashing, systematic brainwashing that we see in Gaza, for instance, uh, the, those, those types of things, I think people are reacting and they're, when you're under those types of conditions and when you're strained and when you're being brainwashed, you, you become more susceptible to information. That's part of what the brainwashing process is, is to put you in a situation where you become more pliant. And at that point, it's just, it's just a matter of um, one type of antisemitism is simply uh, it's just another form of racism where people are venting whatever personal issues they might have from their childhood to extreme poverty to, or as a society having very low quality of life. And it's an easy target. And Jews have always been an easy target going all the way back. It's, they've been scapegoated by multiple societies for things that have nothing to do with them. So these are people who are suffering and they want to take it out on somebody. Uh, and the other aspect of this is a much larger, there's, there's Israel is a state and, and there are political machinations at play mm -hmm. where it has nothing to do with Judaism necessarily, but that's a convenient way to get anti-Semites on board. So I think this is part of what we're seeing with Israel is a lot of the opposition to Jews is being manipulated by state actors who have other interests and they don't particularly care so much about Judaism or, or Islam. They have, you know, it's a power play for them. And that's also part of the equation. So, and that's also why we have to be very careful when people make statements such as it's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel, um, which is true. It's not necessarily anti-Semitic to criticize Israel, but you have to look at each criticism carefully because often many of the criticisms of Israel are in fact anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. So um, each one bear, each one warrants scrutiny. For instance, are you holding Israel to a higher standard than you would any other liberal democracy? Mm -hmm. Are you expecting them to, I mean, if you, if you go back and you look at earlier wars, any death of a child is, is a horrific tragedy, but were we focused so much on the death of children in other wars, or are we particularly more focused on it now because it's a way of blaming Israel and saying that they, I don't know, that they should not respond, that they should. I saw, I saw a stunning interview with a, with a Palestinian journalist in which the host asked her, what is wrong here? And the journalist said, this response is disproportionate and therefore oh. evil. Okay, what would a proportionate response look like? What should Israel do? She had to ask the question about six or seven times. She never got an answer. Of course not. Yeah, because the answer is you should do nothing. Yeah, well, there you go. There you go. Just stop. Just drop your weapons. And, you know, it's that question of proportionality is so... Um, wrong-headed to me. Before I let you go, I have two final questions. Mm. The first one is, how bad do you think this is going to get, hmm. this situation in the Middle East? We know that Iran, I mean, really controls so much there of what's going on with Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, we, we don't see some of the wealthier countries stepping in to help these Gazan refugees. What's, what do you see as how bad this could get? Yeah. Uh, it's scary to think about that. I don't think that 
other Muslim nations are going to accept the refugees because to do so would remove, you know, Gaza plays uh, an important role for them against Israel. It makes Israel look bad for Gaza to be there. So if Egypt or anyone else were to accept Gazans, then it would, it would end that. And uh, I don't think they want to do that. I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, fraternal ties, brother, you know, Muslim uh, fraternal ties or anything like that, because you can just turn the page and, and look at what these nations have to say about uh, Muslim Uyghurs in China. They don't care. They don't so, care. Um, in fact, I believe, I could be mistaken, I believe that the president of Turkey actually even complimented Xi Jinping on the concentration camps in Turkey of Muslims. And now he's criticizing Israel for having a, quote, concentration camp of Muslims. So none of none of this is is good faith. But I think it could get really bad, depending on who gets involved. And I for my loved ones in Israel and everybody else over there, I think that they're, they're lucky that they have an ally like the United States. I would say that. And I think that as long as the United States stands with Israel, then as with Ukraine, for instance, I think that Israel will stand strong. And I think that a lot comes down to how Netanyahu prosecutes this war and what the civilian casualty on the other side looks like because of the way that Hamas is embedded in civilian infrastructure. Yeah. It is unavoidable that there's going to be civilian casualties, but nevertheless, although I don't put that on Israel and I don't, you know, but it's still, you can't avoid the optics of that. Yeah. And so there's no way to go in there and try to get the hostages if they're even still alive uh, and take out Hamas without accruing a very large civilian cash. So the, so that it becomes a question of, of uh, how high that number will climb until Israel starts to be put in a place where um, my concern is the strength of, of America's support for Israel. That's, that's my concern. And then things could, could get really bad. I think that's when the wolves will move in. Uh, I, you know, Israel is not surrounded by friends. No, gosh, no. Finally, what gives you hope in the midst of all of this? Obviously, you have a young a child. And as a mom, I relate so much to what you said earlier about when you look at children being impacted by this, it, it, it rips you to shreds. Um, but there's got to be some hope in the whole thing. And so where do you find it? Um, I, as much as I've seen videos of people supporting Hamas. I have also seen other videos. I saw one recently of a man in New York who was confronting another man who had been tearing down pictures of kidnapped children. And he wasn't Jewish. He said so in the video, but he was standing up for Jewish children. And that made me um, feel proud to be an American. Uh, that made me, you know, he was standing up for free speech. He was standing up for the lives of Jewish children. And I thought, you know, I like in, in my head, I did like a, like a, yes, like that's, that's the, that's the feeling. I see things like that. And that inspires me. That gives me hope. And that's not an isolated video that I've seen. That's probably the one that that's the one that springs to mind first. I think a lot of us have seen it, but um, I've seen other videos like that of, of people showing support, pushing in the other direction. So uh, there is, darkness out there and it is terrifying. Um, but, uh, there are also, there are also people who are, who are carrying the light 
And I think that's very important to remember, especially when you're on social media, it can be easy to forget. Very easy to forget those, those mobs, you've experienced them firsthand and they don't stop. They don't stop. They, like you said, it's sport, David, I am so grateful for your time today and I wish you nothing but success. We've shown people and we'll continue to tell people how they can follow you, go to Substack and read you. And uh, I wish you and your family nothing but the very best, particularly those of your, your loved ones who are in Israel. Um, is, thank you so much. And I, I hope we can do this again. There, we've barely scratched the surface of so many important things and you're a joy to talk to. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you, Michelle. And have, have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.